Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Joe and I are thrilled to welcome Keith Boykin. Keith is a CNN political commentator, New York Times bestselling author, and a former White House aide to President Bill Clinton. Keith teaches at the Institute for Research in African American Studies at Columbia University in New York and previously taught at American University in Washington, D.C. He's a co-founder and first board president of the National Black Justice Coalition. Keith Boykin, welcome to Words Matter. Thank you very much. Keith, hey, Keith Joe, left hi, out Katie. of your bio is we used to work together, so uh, we have a history, and uh, uh, I'm glad to be reunited with you occasionally. Uh, with Mr. Don Lemon on CNN uh, and and some other uh, anchors there. We didn't but just work start, together, uh, though. Joe was my boss. He <laughs> <laughs> didn't say that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we were colleagues, Keith. That's, yeah, right. that's, okay. that's what I say. I also I also describe President Clinton as my colleague. So there you go. <laughs> okay. you know, it sort of works all the way around. I feel like I, I have the same opening question for all of our guests when it comes to Trump and politics. Uh, no matter what the subject is. So I'm going to do it again, which is, is there anything about where we are right now as a country uh, on the issue of race and politics that surprises you? Wow. Um, wow, it's a good question. Yes and no. I mean, it, where we are right now surprises me because I never expected we would be at this point. But having already elected Donald Trump, nothing surprises me. Uh, anything he does is completely expected and predictable. I, I think what people forget, though, that, is that Donald Trump is a continuation of a 50-year pattern within the Republican Party uh, ever since Lyndon Johnson, Democratic president, signed the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964. Republicans have been veering to white identity politics, a Southern strategy that we've all talked about, we know so much about. And um, we saw that in the the, the recent release of the Reagan and Nixon tapes. We saw that with Reagan's behavior when he ran his campaign in 1980. We saw that with Nixon's use of the N-word. We saw that with the Dukakis campaign that we were involved with, where the uh, Willie Horton ad was used against Michael Dukakis. Uh, we saw that all the way to the election of Donald Trump. There's just been the continuous uh, evolution of the Republican Party, a devolution, you might say. The party of Lincoln died in 1964, and now it's become the party of Donald Trump, and unfortunately, that's entirely different look. You say that uh, it's become the party of Donald Trump, but, uh, you know, I think what what's hard to get at, and I'd, I'd really uh, like to probe a little deeper on this, is in an episode recently, we played um, uh, some audio tape of Lee Atwater, who basically said the Republican Southern strategy post-1968 was to be racist, but just don't use the N-word. Exactly. Um, because that, that scared people in the suburbs. So this racism, has this been latent? Has it always been there? And Trump has just decided to ratchet it up? Or has Trump himself moved the party in a significant way? I think it's always been there. I don't think that it's new at all. Um, I think... Um, the Republican Party has wisely avoided direct contact with the racist far-right elements of the party, but at the same time with the Lincoln nod welcomed that, that support. Uh, what Trump has done is 
brought that out to the open. He's taken off the mask and allowed the racist to come out of the woodwork because he's himself a racist. Republicans were at first wary of that approach. If you go back to 2015, 2016, all the Republicans who were serious establishment Republicans were critical of Donald Trump for his race baiting. I I think uh, Lindsey Graham, for example, called Donald Trump uh, a, a xenophobic race baiting kook. I think Mitt Romney accused him of being a fraud and a phony. Republicans were very critical of Donald Trump in 2015 and 2016. They, they just didn't think they could win with an openly racist candidate. And then they discovered they could. <laughs> and, and suddenly they became afraid of their base because they realized that that, that part of the party, uh, which I think has been slowly getting energized ever since uh, not just the 88 uh, Willie Horton ad, but you go back to uh, the Newt Gingrich is uh, taking over the House of Representatives in the 1990s, 1995. Um, you move to Sarah Palin being nominated as the vice presidential running mate for, uh, for John McCain in, in 2008. Um, you look at this this trend and they've been moving this direction those people have been out there the tea party people who came out there even in the in 2009 2010 it's all been stoking the fears of uh, white identity politics and i think what happened is after eight years of barack obama as president and then the idea of having a woman as a nominee for for the democratic party and um the demographic changes that are going on in our country, the idea that by 2044, whites will no longer be the majority in our country, according to the Census Bureau, all these different factors, uh, marriage equality for, for LGBTQ people, the in- inclusion or infusion of, of uh, Latinos or Latinx community and immigrants, all these different factors have contributed to the sense of fear from a lot of white American Republican conservatives who think that the days of uh, white majority control are numbered. And so they're lashing out uh, in every way they can. And Trump is their last best hope. You know, I'm working on a book right now, which uh, is called The Race Against Time, which is literally about what's happening right now, this race against the changing demographics that are taking place in our time. And that's what we're seeing, unfortunately, in the Trump era. In response to Joe's question, you said racism has always been around this way. Trump didn't just bring out something that wasn't there. And my question is now seeing in the past couple of weeks, even he's going to bring this to the forefront, this kind of blatant, direct projection of racism is going to be the center of the 2020 campaign in a way that Republicans have not used it or harnessed it in the past, at least on the front porch out in the open, as we we would say, in Georgia. And um, my question for you is, can that kind of racism win? You mentioned the Ronald Reagan tapes. And just a little bit of background, last week, the National Archives released a phone conversation between President Richard Nixon and then California Governor Ronald Reagan. Keith, you responded to that tape uh, with a tweet, and you said a couple of things. Uh, You said that the tapes have exposed two truths about racism that Republican leaders have been practicing racism for decades and that racism isn't just about using the N-word or wearing a Klan robe. There's a lot of nice and friendly people who are still racist. Now, only three presidents in American history have gotten more than 500 electoral votes, and two of them were on that phone call. In fact, two of the largest electoral victories in the last 75 years were Nixon in 72 and Reagan in 84. So what does that say about the political viability of this brand of racism? 
Yes, the answer is yes. Uh, racism can win a presidential campaign. We've seen it happen again and again. Uh, it was more coded in the past, but we saw it explicitly in 2016. Donald Trump began his presidential campaign with an announcement that he was he was attacking Mexicans. He said that Mexicans were rapists and drug dealers. Uh, he began to surge in his campaign when he started attacking Muslims and said he, he called for a ban on Muslims. Mind you, he started his whole political career back in 2011 when he right. began a five-and-a-half-year campaign against Barack Obama's birth certificate. So every pillar of Donald Trump's political career has been based on racism. By the time November of 2016 came, there was no doubt Donald Trump was already a racist, but people were still in denial about that. There was a lot of talk about economic anxiety as being the real reason why people were voting for him. But if you hear all of what he's saying, all the racism, the xenophobia, the anti-Muslim sentiments, and, and you hear all that and you still vote for him, it's hard to say that you're not voting for someone knowing that they're a racist. You can't deny that that's happening. You can't deny that he's a bigot. You, and people who claim that they could at the time, I think, was were a little disingenuous. So this is a trend. And the problem with the trend going forward is that it's a short-term strategy. I don't believe you can continue to do this. Ronald Reagan could win a landslide in 1984. Richard Nixon could win a landslide in 1972, both in some ways talking about law and order and things like that. And part of the reason why they could is because the white electorate was larger. The share of the white electorate in the presidential race was larger. And what we're seeing now is that every four years in every presidential election cycle, the the share of the white electorate declines by about two percentage points. So if you get to the point where I started my political career in 1988, Democrats were afraid. They were afraid because they kept losing. They lost in 72. They only won in 76 because of the Watergate scandal. They lost in 80. They lost in 84. And they lost in 88. So by the time Bill Clinton comes around with the whole sort of triangulation, moderate third way approach, Democrats were struggling for a way to try to sort of be relevant to an electorate that they saw as being very much more center right. Now we're in a different playing field where Democrats have won the popular vote in six of the last seven presidential elections. They won in 92. They won in 96. They won the popular vote in 2000. They only lost the popular vote in, in, in 2004 by a hair. They won in 2008. They won in 2012. And they won in 2016 again with the popular vote. So clearly the majority of the American people are with are center left. They're with the Democratic Party. And part of that is because people of color are making up a larger and larger share of the electorate. And the Republicans know that. And that's the reason why they're afraid of that. That's the reason why they had that big autopsy a few years ago about uh, making sure they were more inclusive about Latinos. And you had people like Bobby Jindal, who was saying, we can't be the stupid people's party. But then they went full 180 degrees the opposite direction with Donald Trump. So they're, they're really making this last effort. I, I just sort of grasp at the, the possibility of holding on to white identity politics as long as they can. That's what they're doing with the census. That's what they're doing with the voter identification laws. That's what they're doing with, with all the efforts to, to, to take control of the federal judiciary, to appoint right-wing judges to the Supreme Court and elsewhere. It's all about preserving that white identity politics base for as long as they possibly can, knowing that it can't last forever. Well, one of the mechanisms of doing that through the courts and through all of those accomplishments, as they would tout them, uh, that you talked about uh, is voter suppression. And Keith, you've talked about voter suppression and how Republicans have embraced it in the wake of Barack Obama's wins in 08 and 2012. So how central is that going to be in the 2020 strategy? That's a good point. I think it's going to be really important, but... It's hard to tell tell right now. One of the major 
tragedies about the Trump administration is that there's been an erosion, I think, of, of public confidence in our electoral system. We know that Russia interfered in our election. We know that there's been a voter suppression strategy going on by the Republicans. And we know that the Republican president of the United States has done precious little to even acknowledge it. I mean, he was asked a question the other day on the White House South Lawn about whether he believed that Russia was interfering in the 2020 election, as Robert Mueller had said. And he, he, he said to the reporter, do you believe that? The president of the United States, after being told by the intelligence community and his own intelligence chiefs that, that Russia is interfering in our elections in the in the upcoming 2020 election, is unwilling to even acknowledge it and do anything about it while we are under attack from a hostile foreign power? That's inconceivable. And so voter suppression is one of those issues that, regardless of whether it actually has an impact on the outcome of the election, it's the, the fact that it exists, the fact that there is this Russian interference, the fact that the president continues to, to question the integrity of our election process, if he doesn't win, it's, it's rigged, he says. It, it undermines confidence in the government. I, I think it will have an impact in terms of this. We know that the the 2016 election was very closely decided. The, the race in, in Michigan was decided by 10,700 votes, in Wisconsin by 22,000 votes, in Pennsylvania by 44,000 votes. Those three states alone combined are about 77,000 votes. That's not a lot of people. That decided the entire election in, in 2016. That You could fit 77,000 people in a Ohio State football stadium. It's not a lot. We need to focus on turning out our own base of people. We need to try to get out African-Americans and people of color and women and young people to vote. And there, there's going to be every effort made on the behalf of the Republicans to try to stop that from happening. Keith, I tweeted last week and got a lot of reaction from Trump voters. Um, many of them suggested things that are not physically possible that I could <laughs> do to myself. Uh, but but the, the, th- the thrust of my tweet was that Donald Trump is a racist. Um, The difference between 2016 and now is it is much more overt. The second point is his campaign has acknowledged to reporters that this is a strategy. This is what they want to do. They want to use racism as a way to encourage their base to get out in larger numbers so that they can overcome what I think you correctly pointed out is a center-left majority in this country. And coupled with pretty aggressive voter suppression, they think they can win. What caused a lot of the controversy was the last part of my argument, which is if you know someone is a racist and (laughs) if you know that they're using race as a strategy, doesn't that make you a racist yourself? (laughs) Um, At least President Trump believes his base are racist because he's appealing to that. Tell me I'm wrong here or tell me I'm right. Well, you know, I retweeted you when you when you posted that. <laughs> I mean, I got in trouble for saying this on CNN. Well, I didn't get in trouble, but yeah. I said on CNN a, a week a few weeks ago that um, I was on with uh, Rob Astorino, who is a Republican Trump supporter, part of his 2020 reelect campaign, and he was a candidate for office here in New York State. I said to Rob that anyone who supports Trump at this point, after everything he's done, is a racist. Oh, my God. Rob, who I know very well and like, uh, went off on me about how, how are you, how dare you say that? Are you calling me a racist? Are you saying that I'm a racist? And, you know, I don't really, nobody really likes to call somebody else a racist to their face. But I said to him, well, if you continue to support Trump after everything he's doing, then I guess you are a racist. And it's uncomfortable. But what other explanation can you devise or imagine for why someone would continue to support a person 
who repeatedly engages in uh, racist behavior. There are plenty of other Republicans out there who don't do that, at least not overtly. Why would you continue to support this guy? It's the thumb in the eye that the uh, Republican uh, base seems to like. They like the idea that Donald Trump is giving it to the black people and giving it to the Latinos and, and telling those immigrants to go home and, and giving it to the Muslims and, and telling those those NFL players that they need to get off the field, you SOB. And you can't be a party to that. You can't watch the corrosion of our discourse and and the coarseness of Donald Trump's racist rhetoric and be silent about that. If you are not vocally, publicly anti-racist, you are just as much a part of the problem, even if you say you are not racist. And part of it is that we have to also reimagine, re-understand, reinterpret what racism means. As mentioning before a moment ago, it's not just, uh, or actually you mentioned it, Katie, you were quoting me, I think. <laughs> it's not just wearing a Klan robe, or it's not just using the N-word. It's, it's sometimes the failure to stand up in the face of oppression. Um, you know, there's, there's often a tendency to overuse analogies from World War II and Nazism and so forth. But I think if you look through history, whatever example you want to pick up or pull out, the phrase is, uh, all that is necessary, I think it's from Edmund Burke, all that is necessary for evil to prevail is that good men or say do good nothing. people do nothing. We repeatedly see this throughout history where you wonder. I look at those pictures and I see the, the, the fixed pictures from the civil rights era and I see the, 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 the lynchings taking place and the, a bunch of who I assume are good family people who pay taxes and go to church standing outside lynchings of black bodies taking photos and smiling as though this is a good thing. I look at the image of Elizabeth Eckford going to school at Little Rock Central High School in 1957 for her first day in an integrated school and seeing white girls and boys yelling and screaming racist epithets at this little black girl just simply trying to go to school. And I wonder, who are these people? How did you do this? How did our society allow this to happen? And it happens because good people do not stand up and say that this is unacceptable, which makes them complicit. It makes them a party to that racism, to that bigotry, to the biases of society. Keith, is there anything positive about this? The discussion around race has gone dormant uh, until uh, recently. Is there anything that is happening here that can force people to look inside and to understand that while they didn't consider themselves to be someone who had bigoted attitudes or racist attitudes, but the phenomenon of Trump uh, indicates otherwise? Or is that naive? I don't know. I'm not sure um, how to get people to change their attitudes. I, I'm probably a little cynical. I went to law school with um, uh, under the tutelage of Derek Bell, who is a famous critical race theorist who wrote a book called Faces at the Bottom of the Well, The Permanence of Racism. And I kind of subscribe to the idea that racism will be around forever. I don't think we're going to eliminate it. I don't believe we're going to ever create this colorblind society that people thought we might have had, or post-racial society we thought we might have had, some people thought we might have had after Obama was elected. I think if there's one good thing I am seeing, though, it is that I've now seen a tendency, at least in the media, 
a, a willingness uh, to call out the racism, to publicly say, they, to use the word racism. I remember during the debate just a few days ago in, in Michigan when the discussion took place about Donald Trump's racist tweets. I think Don Lemon asked the question, but uh, but still, I've seen other reporters do it who weren't black, who just basically assumed that the, tweet, the tweets were racist. Uh, when you call an American city rat-infested or rodent-infested, when you tell four women of color to go back home to some other country, those are racist comments. And um, the media finally are starting to call that out. So I guess that that is an indication of some progress that we're seeing. Uh, so people have to have some sort of accountability. So that's exactly what I wanted to talk about in, in the conversation and how we're having the conversation. I'm going to briefly disagree, although I don't make a point to do it often uh, with Joe, that this conversation has been dormant until recently. I think this conversation has been happening all over the country for a long time. And part of white privilege is not necessarily participating in it in the same way. But I grew up in Georgia in predominantly white schools um, I didn't learn about white privilege until college. I didn't learn that it was a privilege to walk into a CVS and get a Band-Aid my skin color or even think about that as a privilege until much later on. Um, and I'm still learning constantly. But the way that we talk about this conversation of racism and calling people racist that are still in the process of learning immediately removes them from the conversation. And so what was helpful to me as somebody that learned was learning the substance of racism and how uh, the insidiousness of racism and how it has infiltrated our systems and our infrastructure and how we go about our daily lives rather than just saying that common is racist, you're a racist moving on. And one of the ways that that has become clear is through our educational system. And I want to talk about a piece that Adam Harris wrote in The Atlantic last week uh, that was called The Whiter, Richer School District Right Next Door. And it was about these isolated school districts. The isolated school district itself is 80 percent minority, touching eight or nine different school districts that are majority white. Eighty percent of the children in those districts are white. And that's because the foundation of local education is taxes right. from local properties. And students in the white districts are getting 1000 2000 3000 more dollars per head than children in the, these isolated districts. And so this conversation uh, makes sense to me, this conversation about how racism plays out in our daily lives and how, as Americans, we have built this into our infrastructure. And I don't see the candidates talking about that as much. They briefly talked about it in the most recent debates. But how can we move this conversation forward from a substantive standpoint? And why aren't the candidates talking about it this way? And Adam Harris himself asked all of the candidates for a comment. None of them came back to him except for Castro, who briefly said he had a couple of ideas about how to tackle it. But why isn't that happening? Yeah, you raised a lot of issues there. I, th I think... Um I thought I remember hearing some candidates talk about that, although I have to, in the defense of the candidates, I have to say when you have 60 seconds on a debate sure. stage, you don't really have an opportunity to get into into the weeds on a lot of issues. Gillibrand talked briefly about about white privilege and, and what it, what her role was as a white woman to be able to speak to. I, I saw that, too. I appreciated what she said. I liked her answer, actually. And yeah. it, it reminded me, you know, we all have some sort of privilege vis-a-vis -vis others uh, as an African-American male. You know, I forget about my own privilege as a man. Um, things that I am able to do to be able to walk home at 
two in the morning from a bar or something without ever thinking about my safety uh, is something that a lot of women aren't aren't free to do. Uh, and it's important, whoever we are, to sort of check ourselves and remember where we stand vis-a-vis other people. But in, in terms of the, the issue of, of property taxes and educational inequalities, I actually think it's broader than that. I, because even if you were to, to eliminate the, uh, the funding inequities uh, in the school districts that are unfairly uh, financed because of the local property tax systems, you still wouldn't solve the problem. You still have to deal with the issue of, of, of higher unemployment rates. The black unemployment rate that came out today, for example, was 6.0%, which is the lowest it's ever been. But you know what? It's still twice as high as the white unemployment rate, which is 3.3%. You have to deal with the the inequities in health care, that African Americans don't have equal access to health care or health care coverage or uh, are more often uh, likely to be victimized by various diseases and illnesses. Um, and the environmental racism that, that, that creates those health care uh, disparities. You have to deal with the issue also of housing and access to affordable housing and how the average black person who uh, graduates from college has a lower income than the average white person who is a high school dropout. There's a wealth inequality that has has been transferred from generation to generation over the course of many, many lifetimes. And so just eliminating one aspect of that doesn't really change the whole dynamic because there is a structural racism here that undergirds our entire socioeconomic system. And so part of that is becoming aware of it. Um, Part of it is um, is creating policies that are comprehensive to resolve that, and uh, it's, it's not easy. It's going to require serious conversation. I actually think we need race specific policies in order to resolve the race specific disparities. This whole rising tide lifts, lifts all boats notion, which is popular for Republicans and and some Democrats, I don't think it's true because you may lift all boats, but if you have in- inequality, still you're freezing in, a, in place the inequality. You have to do something to resolve those disparities as you lift those boats as well. Let's be practical and get some of your political knowledge. Basically along the realm of can a racist campaign in 2020 in the United States work? A guy that I respect a lot and his uh, and his political instincts told me in Detroit last week that the African-American community, when race uh, is an issue in the race, it actually depresses turnout as opposed to uh, increases it. Is, is, is that your sense? Is, is there a risk here that somehow – that all of this discussion of race has the opposite impact that what logic would tell you? I, I'm not familiar with that. Um, I think if you go back to the 2008 campaign or 2012 campaign, Barack Obama was the issue. He was the, the first black candidate, first black president. And um, I, I think it actually increased the turnout for African-Americans. Um, and the absence of that, actually, the absence of his presence in the race the absence of a person of color actually had a, had the opposite effect in 2016. You know, one of the things I used, I personally say to people, I don't really say this publicly, but I'll say it now, uh, about the, the 2016 campaign, I think two mistakes that Democrats made that might have motivated the base a little bit more. One is Barack Obama nominating Merrick Garland instead of nominating a young progressive woman of color or just some a person of color in general. And two is Hillary Clinton picking Tim Kaine instead of picking a person of color. I mean, if you want to motivate the base after you had this popular, charismatic black guy for president for eight years, 
the idea of nominating a woman is a, is good, but if the if you know that that particular woman is already distrusted and disliked even among the base, why not pick somebody who's going to excite and motivate the base? And having some white guy out there, unfortunately, is just not going to motivate the base. You know, it's it's, it's nothing against Tim Kaine, nothing against Merrick Garland. They're both great people, and I respect the work that they've done, but. It's not exciting to people, especially after Barack Obama. So you got to give people something to motivate people. And uh, I think I probably would would disagree with the conclusion that race discourages people. And one final point. I remember reading a tweet uh, storm or tweet. Uh, what's it? Thread. Thread a few, days ago, <laughs> a few weeks ago. It's a storm sometimes. It's a tweet thread from a Tim Wise. Oh, yeah, yeah. I read, I read that too. That was really interesting. Yeah. He's a white guy. He worked against David Duke's campaign in Louisiana. Both campaigns, I think. One gubernatorial, one senatorial. And he talked about how encouraging black turnout it was actually critical to being able to uh, to win in that state. Um uh, and Louisiana doesn't really have a recent history of electing Democrats or uh, black candidates for statewide office. It was important to be able to read what Tim Wise had to say. I think he offers a good counterweight to the argument that your friend uh, had offered before. What would your uh, advice be to the Democrats as far as how to engage uh, the, on the race baiting, on uh, on the tweets, you know, everything that Trump is doing? Is it to take it head on? Is it to focus more on economic and educational issues? What What do you think will work and what what will energize the African-American base? Do you mean in the primary or general? I, I think in the general. I mean, I think okay. that uh, the primary will sort out a candidate one right. way or the other. But this is ultimately going to be a battle with Donald Trump. And he signaled that he has no intention of being subtle. Right. Um, what's the best response? To what What will work to ensure that the targets of that racism turn out at the polls? That's a good question. <laughs> I don't really have a good answer for you on that. I think what's important is that you have a, a strong candidate who articulates the uh, progressive vision that the party believes in, that motivates people to turn out to the polls. I think the person has to be willing to take on Donald Trump on those issues, but not solely be focused on those issues. The most important thing is you can't be afraid of those issues. You know, I think there's this conversation now about whether it's a good idea to, to criticize Barack Obama or not. I'm a great fan of Barack Obama. I, I think he was the best president in our history. On the one hand, you don't want to tear him down. On the other hand, you also want to recognize what we could build on, what we could do better, what we weren't able to do. And one of my critiques about Obama is that I don't feel that he was a very effective spokesperson for black people on the issues of race because he was so limited in what he could say because of his own race. You know, it's like the whole idea of Nixon can go to China. This odd thing that that Barack Obama as a black person couldn't really talk about race in the way that you would want or expect a black candidate to be able to do or a black president to be able to do. And in some ways, Hillary Clinton was able to talk about race much more forcefully than Barack Obama could. And so I hope that Democrats, whoever is nominated, don't shy away from the conversation about race and can find a way to do it. You know, Obama was very good at talking to both black and white people, people of all different races and backgrounds, in a way that made everybody feel comfortable. Now it's time for some discomfort. Yeah, now you got to make people a little uncomfortable. You talked about how journalists have evolved a little bit lately and how they're calling out racism or describing it or writing about it. 
uh, and that evolution has been since the Trump presidency. I want to talk about a recent tweet from the New York Times Deputy Washington Bureau Chief uh, uh, Jonathan Weissman, uh. who wrote uh, <laughs> that saying Congresswoman Tlaib and Omar uh, saying that they're from the Midwest is like saying Lloyd Doggett, who's from Austin, is from Texas or John Lewis is from the Deep South. Come on. Um, and you grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, and have some standing on this issue. What do you think of the tweet, and what does it say about how journalists and political analysts are looking at these issues going into the election? I'm glad he deleted it. The tweet is completely inaccurate. I'm a product of the Midwest myself. I feel like I'm just as much a Midwesterner as someone who worked in the factory in, in a quote-unquote rust belt or the, the Great Lakes area or someone who uh, is a farmer. There are black people who live in the Midwest. There are city people who live in the Midwest. There are Democrats and blue state people who live in the Midwest, even though they happen to be in red states. The Midwest is not a homogenous community. It's a very large group of states that have different backgrounds and beliefs and ideas. And we have to be able to, to turn those people out. We were talking about Michigan and Wisconsin earlier. We were not talking about that many people. Again, 10,000 people in Michigan and uh, 22,000 uh, in Wisconsin. If you could get 10,000 black people in either of those two states, or 10,000 black people in Michigan, 22,000 in Wisconsin, you could help win those states. And there are plenty more who didn't vote. So I think that's troubling. But it's also troubling, as you pointed out, Katie, just the whole notion of how journalists, people who are in positions of power, don't necessarily see their own bias, don't necessarily see how they have a blind eye to some of these issues. And I feel like if you're working for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, or some establishment legacy publication, you've got to do a better job of of going beyond your own uh, biases. You've got to try to see through the eyes or lenses of other people to find out how other people see things. It's not just the Washington, D.C., Georgetown cocktail circuit or the Upper West Side cocktail circuit in Manhattan. There are people out there who have different life experiences, even in your own city. Our cities are very different. They're diverse places. Our, our states are very different in diverse places. And I think we have to be careful not to paint with too broad a brush when we talk about these things. I grew up in St. Louis. I was born in St. Louis in the inner city. But then I moved to uh, Florissant, Missouri, which is a suburb of St. Louis. And I, I spent most of my early childhood living next to a cornfield. And I had a BB gun, and I would go out with my friends who were white on the weekends. We would shoot our BB guns at, at, in the cornfield and play war games and things like that. And I feel like that's a very Midwestern experience, according to that stereotypical assumption that people make. But also, I feel like the experience I had when I lived in the city of St. Louis is also a very Midwestern experience, where I grew up in it. There weren't BB guns, and there weren't uh, cornfields around, but they're two sides of the same coin. They're both part of the real-life experience of people who live in the Midwest. Yeah, I could say the same for the South. I mean, I was 45 minutes from Atlanta with all of its rich heritage, but I also had to pass cows, several of them, on the way to my house and had a BB gun around the same time, too. <laughs> but Georgia is a red state, but there are pockets and experiences that are not uh, traditionally Southern in the way that we talk about it sometimes and label it. Um, and even those people that are in the red areas are not necessarily fitting into the, the same labels that we like to put them in politically. Maybe that'll change in 2020, but I doubt it. Keith, uh, one of the probably the greatest value of, of doing uh, this podcast and other podcasts is we get to go beyond your wisdom that we hear in two and three minute blocks on CNN. So uh, <laughs> this is fascinating. We appreciate it. Uh, our listeners appreciate it. And we hope you'll come back. 
Thank you, Joe. This has been a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Katie. Appreciate everything. Thanks for joining us. All right, Joe, as always, we have a lot to ask you about for what's on your mind this week. First up, Congressman Ratcliffe, who withdrew his nomination to be director of national intelligence. We've also read that the Trump administration is trying to finagle so that the current deputy, Sue Gordon, a veteran intelligence professional, will not be able to step into that acting role while we await a new head of uh, ODNI. It's part of a trend with President Trump and the intelligence community, but wanted to get your thoughts on the latest developments. It's now old news that uh, Trump nominates someone and lets everyone do the vetting after, as opposed to every other administration that vetted their candidates before. But that's not the important thing about Radcliffe. Um, I mean, at, at the end of the day, I don't care that he lied on his resume. What I care about is this is a continuation of what Trump has done at the Department of Justice. By putting Bill Barr in there, he made the Department of Justice an arm of Donald Trump Political Inc., not the Justice Department for the United States. And by putting Ratcliffe, or attempting to put Ratcliffe as the Director of National Intelligence, he's trying to do the same thing in the intelligence community. Put those two things together, the conspiracy theories about an authoritarian takeover start becoming real in my brain. You've got the intelligence community that's being run by the political arm of Donald Trump as opposed to the national interest. You've got DOJ doing the same thing. Those are two enormous levers of power. You can't underestimate how dangerous that is and how dangerous it is long-term to our democracy. And it's one of those things that people have got to shout this from the rooftops because Dan Coats had the job. And remember, Dan Coats lost the job because he had the temerity to put it together a task force on combating Russian interference in the election. So this is, this is a very, very important moment, a very, very important decision, and a very dangerous trend in our government that we need to pay a lot of attention to. Well, staying in that same sphere of conversation and new lows, the president also tweeted about an episode that happened at Congressman Cummings' house in Baltimore where there was an attempted robbery. Uh, and the president basically said, too bad on Twitter uh, and seemed to make light of it. I don't like giving him more airtime than he deserves, but I think there is a conversation to be had about celebrating that kind of violent behavior and the conversation we've been having about his comments about Baltimore in general. I just think every once in a while we get a moment to uh, to understand just how truly depraved Donald Trump is as a human being on almost every level. Um, I mean, he's been attacking Baltimore. He's been attacking Elijah Cummings is one of the most respected congressmen in Washington on both sides of the aisle, no doubt about that. But when you start celebrating the idea that someone broke into his home, you are sending the message that it is okay to treat people who are not like you, who are not white, in a way that's violent, that's illegal. And while not surprised that President Trump would do this, uh, it's still shocking. It seems impossible that in 2020, someone like that could be reelected, but it's not. This conversation in this country has to happen. 
Do you think that's what moved the needle, at least for some in the Democratic caucus in the House? We now have more than half of them that are in favor of impeachment. It could all be attributed to the Mueller hearings. Or do you think maybe this this had a role to play in those numbers going up over the past week or so, too? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that Mueller was a big piece of it. I think uh, people were, were waiting uh, to hear from him. But I also think uh, the race baiting and racist tweets and racist comments the president has been engaging in has kind of upped the ante uh, with Democrats in Congress. So uh, I'm not surprised that issues that aren't directly related to the Mueller investigation are now seeping in to the political calculations that Democrats are making about where they are on impeachment. So what does getting a majority of the Democratic caucus to be in favor of impeachment actually mean in practical terms, both for the speaker and for the rest of us that are watching this show but haven't necessarily participated in it the same way that you have? Yeah, I think for the speaker, it doesn't mean that much. And I know from the outside that may seem un- or anti-democratic, that a half of her caucus is for something. The reason it's not going to be particularly influential with Pelosi is she's looking at this differently than I think most Democrats on the outside. Her first priority is to make sure that the Democrats at least have control going into 2021 of one body of our government. When the number passed 100 of Democrats supporting impeachment, uh, at that moment, there was only one Democrat uh, who was in a district that Trump won. So it was it was mostly safe districts. It's still mostly safe districts. I've, I've said for a while now, Nancy Pelosi will stand up uh, and be for impeachment when Abigail Spanberger from Richmond, Virginia, who narrowly beat a congressman who's in a very red district, is for impeachment. You know, the 40 districts that the Democrats won, their voters don't want the president impeached. They want to beat him at the ballot box. I think the one caveat to all of this is what uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi and Jerry Nadler are waiting for is if the courts rule in the Democrats' uh, favor uh, about witnesses and information and the White House and Trump defy a court order. I think that changes the equation. I think that will immediately trigger uh, an impeachment But uh, short of that, I think we're just going to kind of chug along and the numbers will go up and Pelosi will find a way to hold this off. Well, that makes sense. Until then, I guess we'll keep an eye on Abigail's district, Congresswoman's district. Um, All right. So before we let you go, Joe, we've got to ask about your thoughts on the latest round of debates with the Democratic candidates. We once again had two nights, lots of people on stage, a lot of commentary about best line of the night, but then a lot of commentary about that's not what we need to focus on. We need to focus on the substance of what the candidates have to say. I believe that only six or seven candidates have qualified for the next round of debates. So we may have a much more limited field, but just wanted to get your thoughts on how the latest round went and where we're going. Yeah, we're definitely going to have a smaller debate stage. Um, I, my guess is about by the time. time we get to <laughs> September. Yeah, about time. By the time we get to September, we'll probably be at anywhere between 10 to 12 uh, will qualify. And my basic assessment of the debate is that Cory Booker won the debate, but Joe Biden won the week. What I mean by that is when you're the front runner, you win if the fundamental dynamic of the race doesn't change. 
and nothing about the fundamental dynamic of the race uh, changed on uh, either the Tuesday or the Wednesday night. There were good performances by Elizabeth Warren. There was good performance, obviously, by I think Cory Booker stood out uh, on stage Wednesday night. Some of the candidates we may not see much more of, Jay Inslee, Michael Bennett, I thought they were very strong in a you know in their limited cameo roles that they were allowed, but when we see the numbers and the dust settle, Biden will still have a significant lead, and the Sanders and Warren campaigns will continue fighting over far left progressive wing of the party. Kamala Harris, Pete Buttigieg, maybe Cory Booker uh, will be fighting for the center left, and, and Joe Biden will be uh, still leading and. You know, having survived the onslaught of criticism, uh, will remain the front runner. One of the silver linings for Biden coming out of the debate is all of the criticism of Biden uh, was interpreted by many as criticism of Obama, and I think there has been a backlash to that. And you've you've seen over uh, the last days Democrats kind of twisting themselves up to say, "Oh no, no, no! Obama was a great president. I love Obama." It's always the law of unintended consequences in these things that by going after Biden so hard, I think uh, it created some sympathy for Biden, gave people a real context for what the Biden-Obama relationship means and what its value is. It doesn't mean a whole lot when Joe Biden talks about, well, I was his vice president. That doesn't do a lot for me. But when you start attacking the record, that gives a boost to Biden. And the last point I'll make on the debate is, coming out of the first debate, you thought the Democratic Party had gone off the left end of the stage. They were for free everything. They were for decriminalizing any undocumented people coming into this country. And I think you got a much better sense this time of where the Democratic Party is, where the voters are, which is center left. It's not far left. It's not Republican light. It's center left. And that's where the nominee will come from. Who will be? I don't know yet, but that's where the nominee will come from. All right, Joe. And last but not least, last week you had a tweet that went a bit viral. And in millennial speak, you got ratioed, which means more people responded to it than liked it. But it said anyone who supports a racist or a racist strategy is a racist themselves. 2020 is a moment of reckoning for America. Vote for real Donald Trump and you are a racist. Don't hide it like a coward. Wear that racist badge proudly and see how it feels. So it seems like you are subscribing to the Avenue Q Tony Award winning song. Everyone's a little bit racist, at least sometimes. (laughs) But is that what you really think? Everyone has a bias and unconscious bias, but I don't think everyone's racist. I sent the tweet out having uh, been really disturbed by the president's behavior and his comments Uh, over the previous few days and having had some time to think about it. uh, And I thought as carefully as you think about a tweet, and I I sent it, it got, you know, an enormous response, Um, a lot of it very negative from uh, Trump supporters, a lot of it along the lines of um, telling me to go jump off a bridge, but a lot of it along the lines of, listen, uh, you know, one of my best friends is black, so how could you call me a racist, which I don't think is necessarily the compelling comeback to, to the tweet. What set me off was was not necessarily that the president's a racist. I think many of us have known that for a long time. What set me off was his campaign was arguing forcefully that they were going to use racism to help him get reelected. That takes it into a different sphere and a different level. And if you're being that obvious about it, 
then I do think that you can't hide behind the idea that, well, I just like his other policies. If you know he's a racist, which you, you can't really argue with at this point, and you know that his campaign is going to use that racism to fuel his reelection and to win reelection, then you're complicit in that. And if you're complicit in racism, I think you're a racist yourself. We had an interesting, uh, an interesting part of the conversation with Keith was, you know, is there a silver lining here? And I actually, I'm, and I may be naive and Pollyannish, but I think this election is going to force people to look at themselves because I'm telling you from personal experience, Donald Trump supporters don't like being called racist. They really don't like it. But people are going to have to ask themselves, is it okay you know, to vote for someone who tells people of color to go back where they come from? Is it okay to attack urban cities and imply that everything wrong with it is because the black people there uh, are somehow not deserving of rights or subhuman in some way? And people have to ask those questions. But if they are okay with it, then in my view, they share the racism that Donald Trump espouses. Uh, and as a country, we just need to come to grips with that. We went back and forth a little bit, Katie, on you know the race uh, conversation being dormant. And you're right, it's not dormant. It has always been there. I think what I meant to is it wasn't central to the campaign. People at the end of the day weren't saying, I'm voting on race issues. I think this campaign, we may get there. And I, I think there is some value to that. I think there is value to forcing people to face up to these issues and forcing them to look at their own biases and forcing them to understand that we were supposed to be created equal and we were all supposed to have equal rights in this country. We know it's not true and reminding people and showing them the many different ways that it's not true is important. And the change will only come from people understanding that they need to change their mindset and they need to change their behavior. I hope in some very small way it forces people to look inside and make sure they're comfortable with who they are. All right, Joe, thanks for uh, for telling us what's on your mind this week. As always, we enjoy it. And until next week. And welcome back, Katie. Thank you. you so happy to be back. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.